Uh, and we're looking at uh, all of the, the material that, that we're going through in the Gospel of Mark is getting us ready for Easter uh, and is taking us to uh, the great, great climax of salvation history, which is uh, Jesus laying his life down as a ransom for many. And so we have kind of given an overarching um, title to this section of Mark as uh, King's Ransom. And so we're getting used to what, what it means, what it requires for us to be saved, uh, which is a king's ransom. So this text uh, really puts in front of us the key question that every single one of us must deal with, must answer, and must answer with not just a sense of, I hope so, but a sense of, of confidence. And that is the question that is presented to us by uh, this gentleman that we know is the rich young ruler in, um, in our text. And he asks the key question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in, in posing that question and in Jesus engaging that question, we uncover what happens to be the greatest obstacle for many to being saved. The greatest obstacle for many to being saved. The last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we focused on the seriousness of sin. Sin is why we need Jesus' cross. This week, Jesus wants to focus on the other great danger of our souls, which is the seriousness of idolatry. The seriousness of idolatry. You see, for most people, it is not that Jesus saves us from our sins that we have trouble accepting. What most of us have trouble with, the obstacle that stands in the way for most people in receiving Jesus is letting go of their idols. Because unlike sins, which we can recognize are odious and are wrong, idols come at us as comforts, as good things, as necessities. And so it is so much more difficult to turn from our idols. So let's refresh ourselves. We've been going through the New City Catechism, and question 17 was, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? And the answer that, that we have from uh, our catechism is idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. You see, that is the snare of an idol. A sin, a sin seeks almost at its surface to, to do you harm. But an idol presents itself to you as something that gives you happiness, that gives you security, that gives you significance, that gives you hope. And so our defenses are so much more weakened towards putting our hands around something that offers that to us, right? And the, the reason that idolatry and idols are so much a danger and such an obstacle to receiving the gospel is really illustrated by uh, our furry creature friend, the raccoon. 
So one of my favorite childhood books was uh, Where the Red Fern Grows. And Where the Red Fern Grows is a story about a young boy who lives in the Ozark, Missouri, who gets two hunting dogs to chase raccoons and hunt raccoons and, and uh, do all of that. And to, to train his dogs about raccoons, he had to first trap a raccoon. And it was, it was shared with him that a raccoon will put his arm through a narrow passage to grab something that it likes. And once it has its hand on that thing that it likes, it can't then pull itself out of the trap. This is how they catch a, a raccoon, and they still do it today. Look, look at this uh, unfortunate little fella. Um, he's got his hand in this trap, and the reason he is trapped is because he won't let go of what's in his hand. It's what's in his hand that he will not let go of that catches him and that brings him down. All a raccoon would have to do to be free is let go of the thing that is in their hand. But they want it so bad that they cannot let go, and it ends up getting them caught. And so that is the, 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 the sad fact. Most of us have raccoon hands. Most of us have raccoon hands, and they have been put in a trap, and you don't know how to pull it out because you can't imagine letting go of what you've put your hand on. That is idolatry. The main point of our passage is to, to tell us this, to stress to this, to take hold of the gospel. We must let go of some things that we hold dearly. To take hold of the gospel, we have to get rid of our raccoon hands. Okay? And so as we go through this passage, uh, it, all of these uh, segments of the text hang together to, to really illustrate three things that Jesus calls us to let go of so that we can take hold of the gospel. And the three things that we have to let go of are self-importance, self-sufficiency, and self-entitlement. So let's go through our text and look at, at these in turn. The first thing that we must let go of if we are going to take hold of the gospel is we must let go of our self-importance. So our passage starts uh, with a, an episode of a bunch of little kids, babies, being brought to Jesus. Uh, the word for children uh, includes any little kid. So, so very likely we have little babies involved in this passage. We have infants being brought to Jesus by, you know, presumably moms and dads. And the disciples uh, come into this scene as the obstacle. They want to prevent the parents from bringing these little children to Jesus. They are, they are trying to fence Jesus from the nuisance of all of these little children. So the disciples are, are rebuking. The, the, the kids that are coming to Jesus. And the word rebuke is a very strong word. It's the same word that Jesus uses to cast out demons. The disciples are rebuking people trying to bring their kids. 
Why? Why does this trigger the disciples so much? I think it triggers the disciples because they have in their mind our proximity to Jesus is a reflection of our own importance. We are close to Jesus because we are Jesus' most important people. We are his disciples. We are his entourage. And so there is this idea that lives, and we have talked about it in in, in Jewish thinking, that the person who gets to be closest to the host, to the center of attention, the person who gets to sit at the table next to the person who is the host, is the most important person in the room. Right? And so here we have all of the most important people to Jesus, his disciples, seeing little children coming and getting to be on Jesus' lap, being even closer than them. And this is a scandal to their mindset of how things are supposed to work because children, most especially before the Industrial Revolution, and so in the time of of Jesus, in in the Roman Empire, children were the most unimportant people in the world. They provided nothing. They solved nothing. They only consumed. They were only challenges. They were only burdens. Our our age of adoring children is a very modern thing. Children were a challenge, and they were unimportant. They were literally the nobodies of the ancient world. And so the disciples cannot handle the thought that they are going to be pushed out of the center with Jesus by the attention of a bunch of nobodies. So what what are the disciples doing at heart here? They're operating on the very standard way that, that we conduct ourselves in all sorts of situations. They are comparing themselves. And and determining by comparison that they have a closer position, they have a greater right, right? They look at themselves as more important than children. And so they rebuke the coming of children. And they do that by comparing themselves with these children. And so it's worth just bringing this right in front of us. We all make ourselves important by comparing. We, we think we are more important or better because of the job that we have, the house that we live in, the car that we drive, the, the, the conduct of our children, our, our beauty, the friends that we have, the number of followers on our Facebook page. We find any number of things to say to ourselves, I'm important, I'm worthy of greater attention or greater status. Where where do you find yourself in the comparison game? I didn't ask, do you? (laughs) Because I know every single one of us have raccoon hands, and there is something that we hold on to to say, I am more important or better off or 
ahead of so-and-so. And that matters so much to us because we have anchored our understanding of who we are and our value in this world by being better than someone or some other group of people. That's just part of how we view the world. And Jesus just destroys this entire ideology by flaring up in indignance. The word that Jesus shows towards his disciples is indignance. He actually shows anger. In in the very few encounters where Jesus shows anger, we have the clearing of the temple, and we have a a passage in the beginning of Mark where, where Jesus encounters the ravages of leprosy, Here Jesus is angry at his disciples because they are rebuking the children. He is telling us that what you say and think about how the kingdom is given out is completely wrong. The key question Jesus puts in front of us in this passage is who is the kingdom for? Who is the kingdom for? Is it it for the disciple that's been there the longest? Is it for the person who is the smartest, the most educationally trained? Is it for the person who is uh, the most well-off? Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Jesus was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Not the important people, not the people that are closest uh, in, in the entourage, but these nobodies. These are the ones that have the kingdom of God. This is who the kingdom of God is for. I mean, this is shocking. This is saying everything that we do to compare ourselves to move up in, in self-importance is ironically moving us further and further away from being qualified for the kingdom. You see, Jesus is not celebrating childishness. He's not celebrating the the innocence of children. He's not celebrating the ignorance of children. He's not celebrating the selfishness of children. Oh my, no. Jesus is bringing these children in front of him to celebrate their total dependence. It is because these children have nothing and depend upon everything that they are unapologetically needful people that Jesus is welcoming them. They don't have raccoon hands because they have nothing that they can hold on to for self-importance. Their hands are empty. Their hands are held out because they need everything given to them. They need their meal given to them. They need their clothes given to them. They need every lesson in their head given to them. They are needful. And this is what Jesus says a disciple must be like. He must be like children. And this isn't just a cute story. This is a most critical teaching from Jesus Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is a statement of Jesus of greatest importance. It begins with the word amen, which is Jesus' device of saying, Give me your ears. What I'm about to put in front of you cannot be ignored. This is top shelf importance. Right? And he also uses an emphatic negative in the the Greek. Uh, In English, it would look like a double negative. But the way that Greek works, the emphasis is two negatives put together. And it is done to make it emphatic to say that it is a not, definitely not. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you enter as a child. The NIV takes this double negative and translates it as will never. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven if you do not come as a child. In the Sermon on the Mount, what is the very first beatitude that Jesus declares to people? His first blessing, again, is this upside-down vision of reality. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit and the child who is needful are the same thing. And Jesus is saying in both of these stories, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal life that is the subject of this whole passage, is given to those who are childlike, those who are poor in spirit. And as if to uh, disabuse us of the thought that that is one category of people in the kingdom of heaven, this double negative says these are the only people that make it into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who are poor in spirit. I I like uh, James Edwards' comments on on this passage. It's a a little bit longer quote than I usually use, but I want to share his words. He says, In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, as the overlooked and dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. So Jesus says, children are the type that receive the kingdom of God. But listen, isn't that actually good news? Isn't that actually good news to hear It is not how important you are that gets you qualified for the kingdom of God. 
This is the underlying good news of this passage. If a child can enter, anyone can. Anyone can enter the kingdom of God. There is no pretest. There is no uh, you know, prior requirements. There is no prerequisites that need to be met for you to be qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. All you have to have is nothing. Nothing. All you have to have is a need, a desperate need. This is the only thing in the world that works this way. You are qualified simply when you're empty. If a child can enter, anyone can. And look at this. The the passage, Jesus' words say uh, that um, whoever receives the kingdom of God like a child shall enter it. That's the the, uh, other half of the statement. Anyone who receives the kingdom of God like a child... The child who receives the kingdom of God, i.e. receives it as a gift with empty hands, receives it completely in the position of needfulness, they have it. They have the kingdom of God. The most needful people are given everything in the gospel. If a child can enter, anyone can. So if we want to be part of the kingdom of God, our raccoon hand has to let go of our own self-importance. What does that mean for you? Where are you puffing yourself up, holding your self-esteem in the who you are and what you've done part Of your life. Jesus wants you to find who you are as I am Jesus's. And anything else that we do is a move into self importance and it's a clutching of an idol that is trapping us from inheriting the kingdom of God. So, beloved, where does self importance? Pull you. Now the second thing that we must let go of is our self-sufficiency. We must let go of our self-sufficiency. Immediately after this encounter with the children, a man comes to Jesus and, and bows before him, falls to his knees before Jesus. And we call him, just by our familiarity with the story, the rich young ruler. Because as as these different uh, stories of this ruler are shared, we get different details. One one gospel gives us that he's rich. One gospel gives us that he's young. One gospel gives us that he's ruler. So we just kind of combine those and call him the rich young ruler. And is not this person the polar opposite of a child? Right? This is as stark of a contrast Now, as we look at this passage, there is something very troubling about it. The troubling thing to me is that this man is sincere. He is sincere. I think that uh, 
the fairest way to read it is that he is a man who really means what he says and really thinks what he says is true. So we read in verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, he had enthusiasm, and he knelt before him, he had respect, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think this guy is sincere. He really wants to know, and he's come to Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, who have constantly stayed away from Jesus or have only come to Jesus to try and trap him, this man comes and really asks the question Jesus wants us to ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But what's troubling is, even though he is so sincere, at the end of this story, he leaves. He is sincere But he leaves. He does not join Jesus. You see, the number one enemy of coming like a child is our sense of self-sufficiency. Is our sense of self-sufficiency. He had great possessions and he could not imagine parting with them. So, so self-sufficiency is this, is this idea that we're, we're basically taking care of ourselves. We're basically meeting our own needs. Sometimes we're even meeting our own wants. But self-sufficiency is this idea that in yourself, in your career, in your bank account, in your home, in your family, you have given yourself the security and the safety and the sense of significance that you need to survive. And you have become dependent upon it. I know I'm okay because my bank account has enough money in it, or my job is secure. But there is a real danger of this idol of self-sufficiency. And I want to bring out two very very clearly. The first is... um, it seems to, to have within it a works-based righteousness. A works-based righteousness. What do I mean by a works-based righteousness? This man is betraying a belief in his conversation with Jesus that goes like this. I do good. Therefore, I am good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I have done all these things. I do good, therefore I am good. This is works-based righteousness. And so what does Jesus begin his uh, dialogue with? It's kind of shocking. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, wait, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying that he is God, and he is not denying that he is good. What he is doing is putting the brakes on the flippant, unconsidered use that the rich young ruler has used the word good. 
You are using the word good as something simple, as something doable, as something common. And Jesus is saying, no, there is no relative in good. There is one who is good, and that is God. And next to God, no one can claim in and of themselves, I am good. Okay? And so he critiques this idea of goodness. Uh, It is like uh, that passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where uh, the, the righteous man Isaiah, the man who could compare himself with anyone and say, I obey the word of God, I do righteous things better than anyone. When he actually met God and saw the angels singing, holy, 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 in his presence, Isaiah's self-understanding of righteousness and goodness just got recalibrated. Because this otherwise good man stands in the presence of true goodness, and he says, woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the presence of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah said, let me turn into atoms and disintegrate, because I am not good in the presence of God. You see, that is what Jesus is trying to impress upon this man by questioning his flippant use of good. So verse 18, uh, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments. And he lists off, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So Jesus lists off what what we would call the second table of the Ten Commandments. The the first uh, four commandments are on the the first table, and the second table is honor your father and mother all the way down from there. And so Jesus lists off all these commandments. These are the commandments that you must do to be good. And, And the man hears all of this, and he says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, we could say, well, he doesn't really grasp the full uh, scope of these commandments. But his conscience, I believe, is being reflected here. His conscience is clear. He has, to the best of his knowledge, to the best of his understanding of the Word of God, been obedient to it. He looks at his life and he says, I have not defrauded. I have honored my father and mother. I have not committed adultery. I have not stolen. And this is the list that most people use to say, I'm a good person. He's just like so many of us, right? He is sincere. But here's the thing. His sincerity and his obedience were not good enough. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's a sincere statement. Jesus loved this man. He loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
you lack one thing. Do you know what that phrase, you lack one thing, means? It means this. You can be good and still be outside. You can be good and still be outside. How? Because of the second issue with self-sufficiency, and that is the idolatry that is revealed here, the idolatry of money. Now, when Jesus says, go and sell all that you have, Jesus is not anti-wealth. Wealth is not the main thing. Jesus is anti-idol-making. He is revealing in this, quest, in this statement for, him, for the rich young ruler to, to respond to that your trust and desire in your money eclipses your trust and desire in God. You see, when, when it came down to, will I part with my money to receive the treasure of heaven of life with Jesus, the man couldn't part with his money. And that was not to critique money. That was to critique the real thing that his raccoon hand was holding. And that was that he found his significance, his hope, his happiness in money. You see, what commandment is missing when Jesus lists off the commandments. The very first one. You shall love the Lord your God before all things. The rich young ruler reveals that he is an idolater, that he has actually put his love of money in front of his love for God. And so the rich young ruler reveals that the greatest obstacle to salvation for many is not sin but idolatry. His his raccoon hand couldn't let it go. Why? Why is this such an issue? It replaces our need in Jesus by providing a sense of security apart from Jesus. Now, we could just principalize and talk about idolatry in general, but I, I think that we need to follow the first idol that is on the the text uh, uh, in front of us, and that is uh, the idol of money. I think we need to ask ourselves, do we have the idol of money? Timothy Keller, one of my favorite pastors, uh, shares this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. So I think it is worth asking the question, Are we in this room struggling with an idol of money? Keller talks about the blindness of heart. So so here's, here's, here's what we think when we think about greed. This is a picture of greed. Right? 
Scrooge McDuck jumping and swimming in his, you know, endless mountain of gold coins, uh, all self-absorbed. That's, that's greed. And you know what? I'm not guilty of that, right? I don't have any greed uh, because that's what greed is. But that's the deceitfulness of the heart. Maybe a more accurate picture of greed is something like this. Maybe a little bit hard to see, but this is a, a chart of, of the charitable giving as a percent of personal disposable income. And it shows that we are in a downward trend. By the way, the high point on this chart is 2.3%. But right now, it says that America, not the church, America is giving about 1.7% of their disposable income to charity. Now, we can't overstate that. And I'm not trying, you know, I think we, you have been a very generous church, and I'm not saying this uh, chart applies to you in any specific way, but we are the richest country in the world of all time. And we are a country where the average amount of money that we can share with all of the needs in this world is 1.7%. We are putting our coffees, we are putting our cars, we are putting our vacations, we are putting all sorts of things above love of neighbor. (laughs) That may just be an indication that what the rich young ruler is afflicted with is something that we have to examine ourselves. Right? Let me make it direct. How, how would you respond if you came before Jesus and he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Could you take that command? Would you say that's worth it? It's for our own introspection. Selling all, is is, is Jesus saying that the way to eternal life is selling all? No, absolutely not. That is not, he is not equating you, you have to impoverish yourself to receive eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that you have to reject all the masters of your heart but one. He is saying you have to let go of your idol and Put yourself in Jesus. Jesus is the only Lord. When he says, follow me, he is saying, make me Lord over all, including your wealth and your possessions. Follow me says, I live by one master, not two or three. And so perhaps some reflection questions for whether or not we are serving one master. Do you think, do you thank, give thanks to God for all you have? Can God ask anything of you? And then, do you keep anything from God? 
those are questions that can help us discern whether Jesus is our one master. Now the third, the third thing that we must let go of as we uh, seek to receive the gospel, we must let go of our self-entitlement. So the, the, the number of broken hearts after this man walks away are many. Who else is astonished? The disciples. In verses 24 to 25, we are told, And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are absolutely astonished. They say in verse 26, Then who can be saved? You see here, again, we are, we are discovering the, the worldview of the disciples. They had come to equate, if you have wealth in this life, You are clearly blessed, and they are going to be the first in line for the treasures of heaven. If you have blessing now, then you are certainly going to be having blessing later. They had this understanding that, that those who were wealthy are always going to get what they want, that they are first in line. In fact, we can tighten that up a bit. Those who are clearly blessed in this age seem, by their logic, to deserve the next age. And so we have in this astonishment this idea that there is a deserve that can be seen in our world. That there are some who deserve. And they deserve it because they've led a good life, or they deserve it because uh, they they have um, their, their own blessing in this world. They deserve it because they're important. They deserve it because what, what would heaven be without me, right? Uh, if I'm not going to heaven, then who could possibly go? I mean, me, not getting to be in heaven? <laughs> Come on, heaven's empty then. There is inside of us this sense of I should be in heaven. I deserve it because I have lived a life that shows I'm a good person, either by our wealth or by our friendships or by our good works or whatever we want to list. But Jesus' words cannot be sidestepped. He says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He is saying that salvation is impossible from our side. We are disqualified. There is no ability, no leverage, no entitlement that can possibly get us to heaven. We can never deserve eternal life. I don't know, but maybe that's the most important thing from this sermon. We can never deserve eternal life because watch how your heart will put the word deserve in a lot. 
So we can never deserve eternal life. But here's the good news. Verse 27. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God is another way of saying God alone can do it. The only way that you can inherit eternal life is if God gives it to you. It is by grace alone. How has God made the impossible possible? He made it. By spending his treasure from heaven, his beloved son, spending all of it on the cross so that by his precious blood we might receive all of his riches. It is because Christ became our ransom that the impossible has become possible, that we can inherit eternal life. But, but what about our cost? I mean, if, if my raccoon hand has to let go of self-importance and self-sufficiency and, and self-entitlement, I mean, that's costly. That's so upside down. Beloved, we will have to kill many idols. We will have to lose many comforts. We will have to go without many valuable things for the gospel. There is no hiding that. And so if your question is, is it worth it? Know this. God's grace will be sufficient. That is what Jesus is saying when Peter says, but look at how much we've given up to be with you, Jesus. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see, whatever God requires you to let go of for the gospel, in your open hand, he will fill you with what you need. Where do we find this picture of brothers and sisters and mother and father and children and lands? He's saying that's the church, folks. He's saying that's your brothers and sisters left and right of you. When you fall down, when you struggle, when you suffer, someone next to you will be there to pick you up. Someone who has more will give you who has less so that you can make it through whatever persecution or trial you face. Jesus has already thought through what you need when you let go of all of these things to receive the gospel. Because he gave you a family. So we are asked to let go of self-importance and self-sufficiency, self-entitlement. We are asked to let go of these things because God has something better 
to put in our hands. And that's what we have to believe. What is it? What is it that God is going to put in our hands if we can let go of these idols? Beloved, He's going to put in your hand His grace. His grace that is more amazing, more manifold than you can possibly imagine. He will surprise you with the riches of His grace. He has His life to put in your hands. I mean, I don't know what you think of the word eternity, but that's pretty big. And He says He will put in your hands eternal life. And then He says that He will put in our hands His treasure. Beloved, what is he saying when he says he's giving his grace, his life, his treasure? He's saying he's going to give you his son. He is going to give you his son from whom nothing and no one can separate you from. From whom will hold you fast and deliver you into the kingdom where you will sit at his right hand in glory. And he will be with you in whatever trial, in whatever suffering, in whatever persecution comes your way for letting your hand be open to him. Is your hand open that it can be filled with the joyous good news of God's Son for you. Beloved, if a child can enter, it's open to anyone. Receive this gift. Open your hands and say, God, give me Jesus. Amen?